Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning. I would invite you to return back to the book of Acts. This is your first Sunday here. We're studying the book of Acts. We are going through it. Up, I thought. Many of you have asked, will we finish Acts? Oh, Acts 19 is where I need you to be, by the way. Acts 19. Will we finish Acts by the time we transition out? The answer is yes, we will finish it. Um, we won't be as slow going as we are this week, and we will be next week, and, and then we're going to pick up the pace and actually deal with it in little bigger chunks and, uh, and deal with the bigger narrative of the text. But uh, so we will get through it uh, by mid May, actually. So. But today we're looking at Acts 19, verses 11 through 22. I have a question for you as you're getting settled here. Uh, did you wake up yesterday just in a really good mood with that warm weather, right? I'm, I was driving around yesterday. Everybody's just smiling and like no one's mad. People cutting people off. They're like, hey, partner, you know, like, everybody's in a great mood. You know, it's weird around this place where one week it's like sleeting, snowy, cold rain. And then all of a sudden, boom, spring shows up in one day. And uh, changes everybody's mood. So that was quite a day. Another beautiful day ahead of us here. So I was just thinking about that here this morning as I was driving in. But, but uh, this morning we're going to look at Acts 19, 11 through 22. And, uh, and uh, before we jump into it, let me just open in a word of prayer here. Gracious Father, we thank you for these songs that we sung. Thank you for just even the depth of that last song, just thinking through the fact that you are so gracious to us, that you engage us and you deliver us. And uh, Lord, what a great thing to be able to study this text, to, to keep pressing on, Lord. I'm grateful that we get to do it together. I pray, Lord, that our time here would just genuinely uh, encourage us this morning, Lord. That's my heart, that we would, we would walk out of here emboldened as we, we look at this passage, God. Would you please do that? Allow us to see the encouragement that's in this text, and may it build us up this morning. And if people have come in here weak, frail, if they've come in overwhelmed by the world and the culture, overwhelmed by their life, as they get a glimpse of you, Lord, may it refresh their soul. And uh, God, I just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in 1999, I went to this pastor's conference. I remember it because... It was a conference on the uh, future of the church, future of ministry, future of preaching, and, uh, and the speaker was just kind of talking about what the next 20 years is going to look like, in his opinion, what the world was going to look like, what ministry was going to look like moving into the 21st century. And uh, I remember I took a lot of notes at this conference, just uh, mainly to kind of see if this guy's predictions would come right, you know, because he's trying to predict what the next... 20 years would look like from 1999 to 2019. And uh, now that we're kind of, you know, uh, almost into that, we're over halfway into his 20-year prediction, we're, we're, you know, 17 years later, um, it's interesting how many of the things that he said came true. He wasn't claiming to be a prophet, he was just kind of looking at the world. And he said basically what he saw in Christian ministry going on was that there was going to be two things that were going to happen in our culture, in his opinion, as he was watching trends. 
He said the first thing that he believed that was going to happen was that the world was actually going to become hostile to Christianity. Now you might say, well, wasn't it hostile in 1999? You know, it, it was in the sense that uh, people didn't like it, or, but, but yet as a church we could, you know, there was a place, a little bit of a seat at the table that the church had, and, and, uh, and we could exist and, and hold to our beliefs. And now what he's saying, and, and I think it's true, is that eventually now people are going to actually start telling the church, you can't believe this. You can't do this. You can't practice this. We're not allowing these things to take place. And they're going to come after you, is what he said. There's going to come a point when you're, you will have to recognize that your belief systems, your doctrines, your constitutions will eventually become against the law. He says, that's what's happening. So his, th- his thought was he would see it happening in the next 20 years. And in some ways, I look at that and I go, yeah, I see that happening now. I do. I see certain belief systems that we hold to that are illegal. We're, on, we're in that moment. He also said the next thing that he said was going to take place is that a new spirituality would fill the vacuum. It won't be like the old spirituality. It won't be the spirituality of the the, the New Age movement of the 1970s and 80s. It would be a new spirituality. And his prediction was that that spirituality would begin to deify the individual choices of people. What he saw was individualism was was going to come up so high because it was so embedded in our culture anyways, that now people's personal choices will become their spirituality. And so people will come to the church and demand that their personal choices be embedded even if those per- in the church, even if those personal choices are against what the scriptures say. Because the new spirituality will be that you, that you are your own God. What, if, you, if it feels good, if it's what you want, how dare somebody say it's wrong? How dare somebody stand up and say the word of God says that's that's not right. How dare you say that? That's what I want. And the new spirituality would be embedded in a deification of choice. Now, that new spirituality, he said, would actually take over to such a degree that some churches might actually start aligning themselves with that new spirituality and preaching towards that new spirituality. And, and, and it'll be so absent God, it would be amazing. I remember writing these things down, <clears throat> thinking, ah, I wonder if that will come true. Like, and yet, you know, you look at it and you say, yeah, that has come true. Now, enter Acts 19. Because I am starting this sermon with a negative, right? It's one of these moments where I'm laying out problems before us. And this sermon could easily turn into one of those sermons, right? It's all going bad. Things are going from bad to worse. Jesus is returning. Oh my, let's pray, right? It could turn into one of those sermons, but I don't want it to be one of those sermons. I don't want it to be one of those, I don't want it to be one of those sermons where I can start clicking off all the things going wrong in the culture, clicking off all the things going wrong in the church, and then concluding with an awkward ending. How do you end that sermon other than don't do that, right? Let's pray. So, but that isn't my point. My point is that Acts 19 is in the Bible and it offers us hope. It offers us encouragement and it offers us boldness. It offers us something. It shows us something about God. It shows us something so incredible that if we see it, it should make us go, oh my, the God of Acts 19 is the same God present here in the 21st century. The God of Acts 19 is the same God present in DeKalb County. The God of Acts 19 is the same God present 
in your home. The same God present in Washington, D.C. The same God present in Europe. The same God present in Canada. The same God of Acts 19 is still here working. And therefore, we don't have to stop short and say, wow, what will the next 20 years of ministry look like and start extrapolating all of the problems? We can actually stop and say, wait a minute. God can and does overcome all of this stuff. That's what we've been studying in Acts 19. We've been studying how prior to this, a couple weeks ago, we looked at how he overcame error. Now we're going to see how God overcomes the spiritual world. How God overcomes the human heart. And this is a timely message because it's a message that reminds us of something. That the God that we serve is not bound to the cultural trends. He's more powerful. And therefore, if we take our eyes off the culture and onto God, it radically changes everything. In fact, the way I look at it is that yesterday's warm weather and stepping outside and putting shorts on for the first time, which was like so great, and, and, and stepping outside was like this refreshment, and I'm driving with the windows open. I got my jazz music playing. I'm like, this is a great day, right? And, and that to me is Acts 19. It's stepping out of the winter, cold, snowy weather, and it's stepping out into a spring day, and it's refreshing. And I want this text to be that for you. Right now, our culture is afraid and going crazy and and politics are going crazy around us, and everything's going crazy, and it's turning into this circus out there. And I think we need to hear from God. And I think we need to remember who God is. And, and, and I want you to see this today. So what I want to show you today is how God overcame the spiritual world and, and showed himself to be bigger than it and in control of it. And then by doing that, how he overcame the human heart and took all these spiritual people and caused a massive revival and I want to tell you that that same God that did that there is the same God that is alive today. And the challenge before us is, will we believe that or not? That's all that it's going to come down to. Will you believe that? Do you believe that that same God is alive today? And if so, then let that encourage your heart today. Let's look at it here. Let's look at how, how God overcame the spiritual world. It's interesting, before we jump into the text itself, I need to set a little context. We've talked about Ephesus before, but I kind of get us all up to speed. Ephesus is a, a very spiritual city. Located in Ephesus was this giant temple uh, called the Temple Diana. Um, it was a, a, a temple dedicated to immorality. It's on the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We only have, it was destroyed, so we only have ancient drawings of it, but appeared to be quite a massive structure. Early historians looked at it and, and wrote about it at the time and said it was just an amazing place. People would come from all over the world to participate in this, all of these practices. And, and what was embedded in that culture was black magic. They did a lot of spells and, and things. They, they practiced this. They had books. They had a library of books of spells in Ephesus. And, and anything you wanted done, you would find a spell and you would have a, a priest or a prophetess come and give you this spell. It was kind of part of the culture, this kind of hocus-pocus culture. Spiritism ruled the day. In fact, there's a carryover from, from, from that day that is in our world today. Something people do, 
probably uh, you will hear somebody potentially do it this week that actually is rooted back into the spiritism of this age. Um, spiritism is the belief, by the way, before I tell you the ritual, spiritism is the belief that there are spirits everywhere, and you have to control those spirits, and if you don't control them, they'll control you. They'll dominate you. And so a life of a, of a spiritist person is a life of fear. They're constantly trying to control the spirits, and they use hocus-pocus and spells and different things to control the spirits. One of the practices that emerged out of early spiritism is this practice. They believed that all along them, everywhere they went, in all the trees, everywhere that there was, there was wood or a tree, they believed spirits were there. And they believed that those spirits could take over your words. So if you said something, they believed like something good, like, man, what a great day it is outside. They believed that a spirit could actually come out of the tree and take over that word, take it away, and it would start to rain. And so in order to avoid that from happening, they would say, man, it's a glorious day. And then they would go up to the tree and they would knock on it to scare the spirits away. Anybody ever say, I've never been in an accident? Knock on wood. It's spiritism. It's where it comes from. The idea that there's spirits in the wood. I've got to knock on it to scare them away so they won't take away my words. That, that was Ephesus, the, the, the culture of Ephesus. Totally believed in these spells and, and all of this stuff, and it was going on there. This is where Paul is ministering. Now, God is going to show himself to be more powerful than, than any of this stuff. So notice verse 11 with me here in Acts 19. It says, and God was doing extraordinary, you got to underline that word, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, now I want you to know something. What, what is a miracle? A miracle is an extraordinary event, right? right? I mean, a miracle is kind of like, hey, this doesn't normally happen, hence the term miracle. So what is an extraordinary miracle? Luke is basically saying, you know, I'm going to kind of jazz him up here a little bit. But Luke is kind of saying, man, we've seen lots of stuff, but I am telling you what was going on in Ephesus was freaky. It was amazing. I mean, he'd never seen anything like this. It was out of the normal, out of the norm. Right? It was just, right, extraordinary. I mean, there's no other word. It's like, this is not the normal abnormal. This is the crazy abnormal. Only time in Acts that you see this. Now, I wanna, I'm making a kind of a point about this because uh, it's a fun point to make. No, I'm making a point about it because some people have used this verse to rip people off. You might know somebody who might have been ripped off. Their television preacher saying, hey, send me a hundred bucks and I'll send you a handkerchief that I prayed over. I'm going I'm to, you know hand you this, this handkerchief and pray over it, and then, and then it, you can touch your face. And then they use this verse. And Luke is saying, this wasn't the norm. This was something so out of the blue. It's not a practice for the church. This was just a moment. We're in Ephesus, probably the most hyper-spiritual city in the world, and God was doing things that he didn't normally do. He was working in a way that was out of this world. 
He was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even if people came up and touched him with their clothes or touched his sin and they brought his skin, sin, <laughs> touched his skin, and, and then went back and touched the sick person, the sick person would be healed. Why is God doing this? He is in, you know, when you're in this hyper spiritual world like 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 uh, Ephesus, God is gonna show up bigger. That's what he's doing. He's he's showing up and saying, okay, I'm gonna do something you've never seen before. You guys might be playing around with demons. You might have seen a lot of wacky stuff in the demonic world. But I'm going to tell you what, man, I'm going to step up. I'm going to do something you've never seen before. I'm going to see diseases leave. I'm going to see evil spirits come out of people. I'm going to see it such a way. If you've got a friend who has leprosy, and you go up and touch him with your handkerchief, and you go over and touch that person with leprosy, it's going to go away. And God is doing this incredible miracle. But I want to tell you something. This extraordinary miracle... This extraordinary miracle wasn't the point. The point is what happens next in the story. God is doing all of this to set up something. He's setting up a table here. Look at the table that he's setting up. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, I'll explain them in a minute, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Matt Freeman reminded me this week that that would be a great name for a heavy metal band. The Seven Sons of Sceva. Not a Christian band, by the way. You don't want to be... So if any high schoolers have a dream of starting a Christian rock band, don't use that title, okay? <laughs> These weren't good people. So <laughs> but, uh, but what's going on here? So you've got these Jewish exorcists. What's a Jewish exorcist? We ran into a, a few Jewish ex, or one Jewish exorcist before in Acts 13. His name was Bar Jesus. Jewish exorcists were this. Many of the Jews had practiced what was called syncretism. Syncretism is when you take a belief, one belief system, and mix it with another belief system and create a hodgepodge, right? It's a soup, right? You put two things together. Syncretizing, syncretism, it's what it's called. And so they had taken a lot of the rules and the laws of Judaism, a lot of the the, 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 the practices of Judaism, mixed it with the spiritism of the age and created this kind of hyper-spiritual Jewish practice. And they would kind of sell themselves as exorcists. You've got somebody who's, who's uh, controlled by a demon, call us in and we kind of take our half-religious, half-spiritual world thing, we put it together and we, we lay this out. Now, what they uh, are doing is basically taking teaching and turning it into a, uh, like a, 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 a potient or a, you know, a saying, a mantra, a spell. And what they're saying is, okay, uh, we're gonna, we, we think truth is like a spell. And if you say it, then it has power to it. Back in the 1970s, there was a big move in Christian circles called the power of positive confession. All it was was kind of, you know, this kind of same thing, hocus pocus spell. We're going to take a, the, the teaching of Jesus, turn it into a, a statement, and if you make the statement, then it, the statement itself has power. You're treating it like a spell. So if you get up and your back hurts, don't get up and go, oh, man, Heather, my back hurts. That's a negative confession, therefore my back will hurt the rest of the day. I need to get up and say, man, Heather, woo, my back feels great, right? even though it hurts. And then that will be like a spell. It's kind of like living in the world of once upon a time. Have you ever seen that show? You know, you've got all these spells and you, and you say all these spells and they, they have power to them. That's what these guys were doing. 
They turned all this stuff into spells. And so they, and these guys are, are the seven sons of a Jewish high priest. That's how corrupted Judaism had gotten in, in Asia. And so um, these guys see Paul. Paul's out there, man, you know, in the name of Jesus, be healed. In the name of Jesus, be healed. In the name of Jesus, be gone. And, and you know, he's just proclaiming all this in the name of Jesus. And they go, hey, that's a cool spell. Let's use it. So these guys start saying, in the name of Jesus that Paul proclaimed, be gone. They think, I, we got a new spell. And this spell is really powerful because we're seeing what this spell can do. Right? It's so powerful that, that Paul doesn't even need to be in a room anymore. You know, it's just incredible. So we have the spell. So they go and they find a demon-possessed guy. They go to his house. And they're like, these seven guys are like, we're ready to roll here, man. We got the spell. They go to the demon-possessed guy and they say, we adjure you in the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims. Be gone. Okay, so this is the moment. What's going to happen? Is it going to be once upon a time, lots of purple smoke? Elsa appears? I don't know what's going to happen, okay? If you haven't seen the show, that makes no sense to you. That was just a contextual joke for the five people who have seen that. I got a few thumbs up in the back row. Thank you. Okay. I'm just showing that I can be hip, okay? Verse 13. Not verse 13. Verse 15. Notice what happens. But the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize but who are you? <laughs> That's really bad when a demon's rebuking you, right? That's like a new low. You're in a bad spot, right? Okay, we got Jesus. He's the one who's the judge of the living and the dead. He's going to cast us into hell. We got Paul. We know who he is, right? He's his servant. Seven guys, who are you again? Tell me who you are. Uh, have we been introduced? Because you have no power here, okay? Jesus' name and his words are not spells, guys. So what happens? Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Those are really nice words. You know what happened, right? This guy whooped up on seven guys, tore them to shreds, tore their clothes off, and they are running out of the house bloodied and naked. It's pretty amazing. You can't use Jesus as a spell. And it doesn't work. Why is God doing this? What is going on here? God is showing something. The point of God is that he does have the power to overcome the world, but his power isn't a formula. His power isn't a spell. His power isn't like the spiritism of the age. God is not a spell to be spoken he is a Lord to be served, right? You serve him. You serve God. This is, you serve him. He isn't to be used. He's to be served. Paul wasn't using God to heal people. Paul was all about letting people know how awesome God is and that he's the judge of the living and the dead, that, that he's the ruler of the universe, that he possesses all power, and he's proclaiming this, and God is just working through him, kind of verifying this message by putting on display his miraculous power and these guys are saying, man, I'd like to use that power. And the evil world says you can't because God is not an incantation. So here's what God has done. He has now overcome the spiritual world, and he does it by two ways. He does it by 
by absolutely overcoming it and, and healing people, doing extraordinary miracles. And he does it by exposing people who want to do it through syncretism, do it through adding Jesus to their life, and by exposing the, the complete incompetence and inability of the leaders of the age to ever do what God is doing. You can't mimic God's power. You can't pretend it. You can't fake it. You can't. You just serve God, and God will do what God will do. So there, he has overcome the spiritual world. Now, I want you to notice how this translates into overcoming the human heart. So there's our second point, overcoming the human heart. When the demons attack this guy, here, here comes the point. I want you to notice, the point, a revival is going to break out, but the revival isn't breaking out solely because of the handkerchiefs and all these other things. The revival actually breaks out when seven Jewish exorcists gets beaten up by a demon. This is what starts to cause the revival. It's kind of weird. Okay? Notice, there's, the, the culture now has three responses. And in the course of these three responses, we see God dealing with their hearts. The first response is fear. Okay? First response is fear. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Right? Again, Greek word all means all. Everything. Right? Everyone. And, and in fact, Luke wants us to know that it's everyone, so he says, it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, right? I mean, the Jewish world, the Gentile world, they all heard about this. And then notice this, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It's all different kinds of cultures out there. A lot of times missionaries say they're, you know, have identified three kinds of spiritual cultures. Our Western culture is what's called a guilt-based culture. We think about obeying God or disobeying God. And if we disobey God, we're guilty. And, so, and, and that's how we think. And so we, we present the cross this way. We present it by saying, you've sinned against God. You're guilty. But the good news is Jesus paid your guilt, paid the penalty. You're not guilty anymore, right? That, that's our culture. Spiritism cultures are what are called fear-based cultures. They're constantly afraid of the spirits, constantly afraid. And, and in this case, God is exposing that fear. That's what he's doing. He's exposing the fear of the culture. And so now he's laying the fear out. And he's making them afraid. And what's he making them afraid of? He's making them afraid of the awesome power of Jesus. See, what God is doing in the spiritual culture is stepping in and saying, I am so powerful. There's nothing you can do. They feel exposed and nervous. I remember I had a a trip planned, I was living in Alaska, and I had a trip planned to leave in September of 2001, and, and, and my date for leaving uh, for that trip was like September 21st, and of course September 11th happened, and all the airplanes were shut down, if you remember this, they weren't flying for a week, and, um, and so the very first time the airplanes opened is when my trip was scheduled to go. And I remember talking to Heather, like, should I go on this trip? She's like, yeah, you should go. I'm like, yeah, but like, you know, this is the first flight out. She's like, it's probably the safest flight, right? You know, the first one since the planes have taken off. All right, so got on the plane. Hardly anybody's on the plane. Hardly anyone's on the plane. And, uh, and everybody was nervous. There was fear. You could feel it on the airplanes. You could feel it. You could feel it. I, I walked up to the front of the plane to use the lavatory, and people are looking. 
who's walking up here. You know, got to the airport. The airports were desolate. I'd never seen these airports so desolate. And there's fear and quiet, and it was a somber mood. And I thought about that because I was thinking, God just absolutely put his power on display. And these people are terrified. Their weakness has been exposed. And so what do they do? They start extolling Jesus. That's the only thing they can do. Jesus, you are the more powerful one. right? Uh, these leaders here, these seven leaders, man, they've been proven to be folly. We can't mimic this. We can't copy this. We can't add this. We can't add it. We can't add it to our arsenal of truth. Right? Syncretism, spiritism is like adding things, adding things, borrowing from this, borrowing from that. No hocus-pocus spells. You're the only one, man. And they just start lifting up. And he's saying, like, the spiritual town now is turning into this praise center for Jesus. It's amazing. But that's not all that's going on. Confession is going on. Look at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. you got to understand what the word confess means. Confess is not admitting, right? There's a difference. We've talked about this in other times. Confessing is to say the same as. That's what it literally means, to say the same as. And so the idea behind it is that you don't just kind of go, wow, yeah, I was a spiritist, my bad. Jesus, you're, you're great. You are actually divulging. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've done. When I talk to people who are struggling with their sins, and they come and say, Steve, I can't break this sin. And I say, tell me what the sin is. Well, I'm struggling with this. Stop. Is that really what the sin is? Go deeper. Right? You didn't just have a fight with your spouse. You violated your covenant with God. You misrepresented the gospel to your children. You dishonored the glorious person of Jesus Christ. That's what you did when you got in a fight with your spouse. Call it what it is. That's confession, right? I'm not speaking to any of you here. It's the proverbial person I'm counseling, right? This is what's going on. Call it what it is. That's confession. Admission just says, oh, I got to fight. Confession says, I violated the covenant. I misrepresented the gospel. I, 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 I totally, absolutely undercut everything that Jesus died for. There, that's confession. That's what they're doing. They're literally going, Jesus, right? They're, they're extolling Jesus and saying, we are practicing this and this and this and this. And, and they're going down the list of everything they've done. Just laying it all out. Why would you do that? Because you know it's wrong. And you want to bring it clean before God. I believe they want it clean. They want to be made clean. They don't, they don't want any of this stuff. They're divulging their practices. They are talking about all the wicked things they were doing in the temple. Diana, all the wicked things they were doing in their, in their spiritual practices. And, and if you read any, don't do this. But if you read any of the books that were written during this age and the things that were going on, it was just horrendous. They're coming clean. They're coming clean. This is what's going on. This is, what, this is the end result of a true gospel work. People now fearing Jesus, divulging their sin. And then there's a third response, repentance. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now before you think of some Nazi moment, right? Bring all the literature. What are the books? This isn't that, right? The libraries of Ephesus were not empty as far as literature goes. What were they burning? 
It was their magic art books, right? The issue of spiritism is spiritism believes that, that the power is in the spell. So you have books of spells. And they're saying, we no longer want the spells, right? We're not going to keep them as a little memento of the past. Well, my grandfather gave me that book and I'm connected. No, man, I don't want this anymore. I am done with it, right? This is the equivalent of somebody who's struggling with, you know, internet gambling and they're smashing their computer. I don't want it anymore, right? I'm done with this. I'm done with it. That's what they're doing. I'm done. Repentance means you turn your back on something. You're turning your back on it. I'm done. It's over. This season is done. Notice that Luke wants to let us know it's 50,000 pieces of silver. If you kind of play around with the math, and I will not walk you through the math journey because it probably will be wrong on my part, but I'm confident with this end number. It's about $5 million worth of books in our day, in our economy. $5 million worth of spells that were burned. These people had repented. Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see that word prevail, like overcome mightily with power. Luke points this out to us multiple times because the end game of all of this is that the word of God would be proclaimed. That's what this is always about. right? It's not about the miracle. It's about the word of God. Is that the word of Jesus as Savior, Lord, Judge, as Redeemer, as King of kings and Lord of lords, would go out to the nations and that people would hear that there is one King who rules all over all, one Father through whom we all derive our names, one Lord, one Savior, one hope, one faith, one baptism, all one. That this message is going forth and people are now believing the message because that's what Paul was ultimately about making sure this would happen. And as that word's going forth, hearts are changing, lives are changing. We've got a revival going on. That's the God of Acts 19. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Right? It's pretty powerful. What I think is interesting, before we kind of wrap this up, is I just want you to look at Paul's response to this in verses 21 and 22. Right? He's got this incredible thing going on, which I think would be pretty wild to see, wouldn't it? Like to experience. I've never experienced that. Right. I mean, I'd love to see something as powerful as that. And, and notice Paul's response. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. He basically said, okay, i got to go to Rome. Why? Because the point is to keep spreading, to keep advancing. The church is advancing against the gates of hell. The gates of hell have been broken down in Ephesus. It's time to go find another gate. We're going to the capital. That's where we got to go next, right? Paul's pushing it. What does he do? He leaves Timothy there. Now, just to connect your Bible for you in your, in your head, and if you were to look at 1 Timothy, you don't have to turn there. We're not looking there. But if you were to turn there, you would see Paul talking about, hey, I left you here, man to tell these false teachers, because those Jewish exorcist guys are still hanging around. I told you to tell those guys to be quiet. I want you to appoint elders. I want you to get this church in order. I want to get the men in order, the women in order, the worship in order. You got to get this, this thing's out of order. Paul is leaving a church that's not in order yet, but he leaves a guy behind to put it in order because the church is to advance. It's to keep going. It's to keep going and until Christ returns. It's pushing to the edge of the age all the time. Reach every nation and every generation. That's where it's going. So, how do we wrap this up? 
So a few things I just want you to think about, and then we'll pray here. The first is this. The word of the Lord, as he says in verse 20, is spreading and it's, and it's, and it's prevailing mightily, right? It, it increased and prevailed. That's ultimately what we are about. This is the end of the day. This is what it's about, that God's word would go forth, that, that, that it would prevail in people's lives. I want us to keep that in mind. Everything that we do, everything that we learn, the classes, Tuesday night and our doctrine study, we gather this Tuesday. Why are we gathering? Are we just gathering just to get doctrine in our head? No. We're gathering so you would understand who God is, so that you could bring that understanding to your life, to your family, to people who are struggling, to your work, to your coworkers, that the word of the Lord would spread. That's the point of this. If you're not established in the word of God, it's, it's hard to give it away. And so we establish to go. What we're learning here is to establish you so that the word of the Lord would spread, so that a historian could say the word of the Lord spread to Kelb County and to Ogle County, and it just spread and prevailed mightily. Second thing, though, that I'd like us to think about is this. I'd like us to think about this question. What holds our city in bondage, our community in bondage? What is it that holds our... I'd like you to think about that. Because this is, this is the thing that we should be praying about. Like I was thinking, a couple... I have two things, but I think there's more. But I think, I think hopelessness and impurity holds our community. I think there's a lot of impurity that goes on. I think there's a lot of perversion in our community. And I think there's a lot of hopelessness and despair in our community. I think those are strongholds that are here. I see lots of it. And I think it's interesting for us to kind of say, we might not be dealing with the, the seven sons of Sceva walking into our town trying to exercise a demon through some Jewish mystic ritual. But I do think that we're surrounded by people who are in another form of bondage. And I do believe that the same God of Acts 19 is the same God that's here in our community. And I do believe that God has left us here to pray that he would manifest his overcoming power of the issues in our community. And I'd like us to start praying for that. I'd like us to start asking, God, what is it that we should be praying for specifically in our community? What is it? What is the bondage? God, and we are asking that the same power that you use to overcome the culture of Ephesus, God, would you overcome this culture here? Would you do it? It doesn't really matter who's elected president. It doesn't really matter who the mayor of our town. It doesn't matter because God is over all of them. If God can cause a revival by, by beating up seven Jewish mystics with a demon-possessed guy, Think about what he could do with 250 people praying for the community. It's amazing to think about that. It's amazing. We should, we should and that kind of leads me to say, let's pray that God would overcome the strongholds and that we would be there to be the agents used to bring hope, the agents used to bring purity, the agents used to, to, to stand proclaiming the power of God. I think that's a great thing to pray for. I think if we shift our eyes from just praying for ourselves to praying that God's power would overcome the strongholds of our community, and we, we, we say, let's do it, let's bind together. Man, I'd love 
to read. I'd love to be able to, 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 be able to share with our great-grandchildren one day what happened when God overcame this power and we could, the power of our culture and we could say the same God who's alive and well in Acts 19 is the same God who's alive and well here. So let's pray to that end right now. Would you bow your head with me? God, I thank you that I do not have to be worried about the direction of the community or culture in the sense of that it owns this world. You own this world. I thank you that even though things are getting rough, even though the predictions of a guy 17 years ago were right, yet you're the, still the same God of Acts 19. You're the same God that worked mightily and that exposed the folly of the religious belief system in Ephesus. You exposed it. You, you turned it upside down. You showed these people that they were believing in something that was deadly. You showed them that they had no power over the demonic world. You showed them they had no power, that their spells were worthless. You showed them that, that everything that they had believed in, they were standing on, a, on cardboard. God, I pray that that same thing would be true, Lord, for our community, God. Give us a heart for our community. Give us a heart to start seeing what those strongholds are. God, would you expose the fact that impurity and living for the lust of the flesh is empty and worthless and leads to despair and destruction? Would you lift people out of the pain and the misery that isolation and individualism leads people to? Would you lift them out of the, the, the pain that comes from living for the lust of your own flesh? God, would you do a miracle and show this world that, that what they're holding on to is worthless? And Lord, would you empower us with the truth, empower us with your spirit, empower us with your word, that we might be ready to stand, and as, the, as, 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 as things crumble around us, that we would stand there and point to the glory of Jesus, and we might see homes healed and people saved and hope given, Lord. Lord, may we be truly committed to praying this, not just here on Sunday, but Lord, do a work in, with your spirit to grip our heart and that we might pray this way boldly as we go to work, as we engage our neighbors, engage in the community. God, I believe that you are the same God with the same power, the same desire to make your glory known in this age and in every age until you come. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.